My name is Craig Pickett. I'm an executive recruiter. More than a decade ago, I started my practice for one purpose, to use my experience as a former military aviator, business jet sales executive, and P&L leader to help aviation and aerospace companies and their executives be fast, adaptable, and strategic. I do these podcasts to inspire and inform, but more importantly, they are a focused platform to help business leaders grow. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I am uh, absolutely thrilled to have with me uh, today Brigadier General uh, William Bill David. Uh, Bill is a uh, combat decorated uh, Army veteran. Um, he's won multiple bronze stars and other uh, distinguished uh, uh, decorations from his 28 years of active duty uh, service in the Army. Um, he's led some, uh, some major organizations, as a, uh, uh, also graduated from West Point. Upon leaving the Army, he spent 15 years with Cubic Corporation, where he became the, uh, the VP of Defense, um, leading Army combat training programs, and then became the COO of Valiant Integrated Services. Bill, hey, thank you for, uh, for coming on today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Craig. Glad to be here. So uh, you've led some major organizations, both in the Army and then uh, on, you know, you know, carrying on into the uh, defense arena um, in, the, in private industry. With, with the age of uh, COVID upon us now, how should CEOs be thinking um, of leading their teams in you know, what is now a very chaotic environment? Well, um, as, as we talked about before, Craig, my, uh, my experience um, after retiring from the Army in the aerospace and uh, defense market space was, uh, uh, was on the services side. Um, you know, providing services to um, Department of Defense organizations, primary, very, very Army-centric, uh, not surprising given that my background was Army, um, but um, also providing service support uh, to the other services as well. So <clears throat> for that particular market or for that particular industry, it's a very, very uncertain time. And... Um, I think my number one piece of advice would be CEOs and their um, their direct reports should be over communicating to their customers. Um, and the reason for that is I think the dynamics of this COVID-19 um, pandemic are very, very likely to change um, over time. Um, depending on a number of variables that that we know about and probably some other variables that we don't. So um, customers are going to have a view. Cust customers are going to respond to those um, um, to those situations and they're going to have a view today of um, what they need to do differently or what they need to do more of or what they need uh, to quit doing. Um, in order to uh, satisfy their organizational requirements, whether that's um, selling something or training or whatever it might be. 
Um, <clears throat> they're going to have a view of what they need now that is different than what service providers gave to them yesterday. And, and that, that, that demand is likely to change based on variables. I mean, as an example, if we're able to, if medical science is able to produce a vaccine quickly um, within a year, um, that will uh, that will change the demand side. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think number one, CEOs need to be over communicating with the customers and um, staying abreast of what it is the customers really want. And um, then obviously taking a look inside their own organizations and trying to figure out, you know, number A, a can we provide that? B, you know, if we can't provide that, is there a, can we get a teammate who might be able to provide that? And, you know, there might be a number of, of, of the situation may cause business to form any number of teaming arrangements with other companies that they never considered before. Yep. Um, so I think that's number, number one thing they need to do is, is a CEO would, I would, I would suggest over communicate to your customers uh, make sure your direct reports are over communicating to the customers so that you can have as clear a picture as possible of what it is your customers actually want. Yeah, and I, I couldn't, you know, look, communication, you know, nobody ever got in trouble from uh, from over communicating. And you're absolutely right there. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, a lot of businesses have come out, you know, recently, and it's like, we're all in this together, you know, message and, you know, yeah, we are. And that's great. But, you know, the one thing I've been encouraging people to do is go to their customers and go, what are you going to need in six months? You know, once, you know, what do you, you know, what do you think you're going to need? How is all this going to affect you? And how can we help you get there? And a lot of people are like, Hey, look, I don't, I don't really know what I need, but I think most people have a good idea of, you know, what's going to happen and where they're going to need to be. And, you know, that, 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 that constant dialogue does help people at least create a, you know, yeah, it might be, a, it might be a, a broad direction, but at least, you know, you know, whether you need to go Northeast or Southeast um, as a start and you can start to hone it in from there. Yeah. What I, was, about I was really impressed with, um, you may recall the, uh, uh, I can't recall. I can't recall the gentleman's first name, but Dyson, the guy in the UK who makes vacuum cleaners. Oh yeah. Um, when there was an apparent surge demand for ventilators, he and his company went to work at the quick time and spent about twenty-five million dollars, a little over twenty million pounds of their own money to uh, convert plants and instead of making vacuum cleaners, making ventilators. Um, now, as it turned out, the demand for ventilators did not meet the expectation. But the fact is that Mr. Dyson and his company were extremely agile and were ready to meet that demand should it be needed within the United Kingdom. And so now they're looking at ways to market those ventilators that aren't needed at home and you know sell them to other companies. But, but I think that's a wonderful example of uh, of how an innovative CEO, who, by the way, is in his late 70s, um, you know, pirouetted on top of a pinhead and reoriented his company to meet a demand. 
Isn't it amazing? Yeah, there's a Wall Street Journal article about that same thing. And it talked about how all of a sudden in companies that have been very slow acting, you know, all of a sudden this comes along and they're able to, you know, like General Motors, Ford were a couple of examples that the, the journal used, you, you know, Dyson, as you mentioned. Um, you know, all of a sudden the innovative spirit came out of companies and they were able to pivot. And you think about why aren't companies able to do that more often? You know, you know, do, do we just get all holed up in our, well, we've never done that before, um, bureaucracies and mindsets such that, you know, we, you know, we don't even try. Um, does it, you know, you know, should it take an emergency for you know, people to, to, to really get out of their own way, I guess is a, is a good question. Yeah, that's a very interesting question because that goes to the heart of uh, company culture, really. I mean, you, um, you know, there are companies out, there are companies that put a premium on uh, innovation, put a premium on obviously, you know, uh, profit and, and return to the shareholders. Um, but there are other companies that, you know, their culture values other things. I mean, there are some companies, I'll just, one that comes to mind, and we take Procter & Gamble. They're a very successful company. But uh, Procter & Gamble uh, has a history of uh, promoting from within. They don't, they don't hire from outside. They promote from within. Right. And so um, as you move up the, the pyramid of, of Procter & Gamble, you're going to get people that are steeped in the Procter & Gamble way. Now, whether that is whether that brings the necessary degree of organizational agility, I don't know. Um, but there are companies that uh, um, that can respond, and there are companies that can't. I mean, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the book um, "Good to Great." Sure. And uh, you know that book has some wonderful examples of you know companies that just. And couldn't respond to challenges that were much less demanding than COVID nineteen. I mean, mm -hmm. how many Sears stores are are <laughs> are in shopping malls these days? Yep. You know, how many shopping malls are thriving these days? You know, those kinds of things. So, um, it's you know, it's that's I think that's a that's an interesting field of study in its own right about uh, you know why companies survive and why they don't. Yep. I know I, I I totally agree with you. And it just, you know, I never really thought about it until I read that that journal article about wow, you know, they're absolutely right. All of a sudden the innovative spirit came out of some companies that had been struggling to find it for a long time. And um, you know, with with impressive results. But you know, let's let's talk about, you know, so there's gonna be some challenging, everybody's saying some challenging economics time or economic times, you know, the next six to twelve months. Um you know, as a senior military officer, leader, combat officer, how did you pick your teams? You know, what should, uh, what do you think, well, you know, leaders and CEOs should be looking for right now and picking their teams and what might be a challenging environment? Yeah, I mean, as you know, in, in some cases in the military, you don't, you don't maybe get a choice on uh, picking a particular person that you want to fill a uh, particular billet. Um, sometimes that choice is made for you. Um, in the corporate world, you have a little more latitude. 
Um, but um, you may have chosen someone to fill a role or a CEO or senior manager may have chosen someone to fill a certain role um, because they needed that person's skill set at the particular time they 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 selected them to fill that that position. Now the demands are different. Um, you know, it, you have I, th I think managers, senior managers, have to evaluate whether whether their 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 key personnel, their brain trust, that whether they have the capacity to uh, provide the skill sets and the leadership um, that they need now. And I don't know if I'm making myself clear, if, if there's been a change, can that person grow into it? And if the answer is yes, then I think it's incumbent on the senior manager for the health of the organization to do all they can to, to, to help that person grow into the demands of the, of the position. But if they can't, um, and they're not responsive to appropriate coaching. Um, I don't think senior, I don't think senior managers can be bashful about making a change when the change is, is necessary. Um, so, <clears throat> but I think it all starts with um, whoever the boss of the organization is, whether it's the CEO or the president, the commander, whatever. I mean, th that individual sets the tone of the culture of the organization. And I would submit to you, if the culture is not one uh, in which there is trust among the top team mm -hmm. and a commitment to open and honest communication without recrimination, then if that environment doesn't exist, that company, whatever line of work it's in, is going to have severe problems and, and may not make it. Um, those are foundational elements of any high-performing organization that I've ever been a part of. Um, and those are elements that have been absent in the organizations that I've been a part of in which I couldn't wait to get out. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> you know, that's, that's the foundational piece. And if you have that foundational piece, um, I believe that the, that the boss um, can use the capabilities of his or her top team to rationally define um, define the situation. You know, kind of go through a SWOT analysis process, um, and 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 do it in a disciplined and a um, very inclusive sort of way, so that um, you know you actually do have a clear view of, um, of what is out in front of you, you know, threats and opportunities in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so the CEO has got to lead that process um, or got to, has to ensure that process happens because if, if, if the company doesn't do that, um, 
in addition to being a great way to get people on board, um, if the company doesn't do that, then you're kind of in the situation where if you don't know where you're going, any road's going to get you there, right? Pretty much. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, look, you know, some of the conversations I've had with people is, hey, look, you better, you know, take a look at, you know, if, if you think you're going to be challenged for the next 12 months from a revenue standpoint, you know, now is the time to get everybody aligned with your goals and your, you know, with, with your goals for the next 12 months and anybody who's not aligned, take a hard look at them. And, yeah. and it's going to be uh, people who can't find, can't add value, better figure out how to add value now um, or else it's, it, it becomes a meaningless you know, conversation. You know, somebody who cannot add value to the organization becomes overhead and you know, it's like waiting in an airplane. You know, when, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a likelihood that, um, you know, within the aerospace and defense uh, industry, you know, we are likely to see even greater consolidation um, the longer this pandemic pans out. I mean, you've got, um, as you know, you've got, you've got small companies, you've got you know, mid-sized companies, you've got the big larges. Now, do I think Boeing or Northrop Grumman is in danger of going out of business? No. Um, but I think a lot of smalls and mids could be because um, they just don't have the, they just don't have the, uh, they don't have the cash reserves to sustain severe downturns in revenue Right. Over extended periods of time. Um, I'm familiar with a couple of mid-sized companies that are, if they're not careful, they're going to go into a, um, a death spiral if they're not doing it already. I mean, they've, they've lost revenue. So what's the first thing companies do when they lose revenue? They lay off staff, right? Yep. And so um, they start laying off staff, which impedes their ability to, uh, sustain the business, much less grow the business. So, um, I, I think there's a real there's a real chance that we're going to see further consolidation um, in this market space. And um, you know, it's a I'm, I'm sure, and I don't know Northrop Grumman. I'm just using them as an example. They're a huge company. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, uh, corporate development folks at Northrop Grumman weren't looking at this as an opportunity for, um, you know, some very, some very advantageous acquisitions. I think every large company is probably doing that right oh, now. Oh, sure. There's so much dry powder out there right now that, yeah. you know, that's, you know, that's what a lot of people are telling me is, hey, look, we're going to go, you know, yeah. we'll figure out how to get stronger. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think, a lot of times, you know, you take, if you take a manager and you make a hire because, you know, this individual knows a particular market space real well, they're well connected, um, they know how to manage uh, profitability, um, but they're not terribly innovative, you got a challenge. So back to your point on picking the team. Um, I think CEOs are going to have to um, 
give a lot of thought to the skill sets that they need on their team to um, to survive. Um, you know, perhaps it may not be. Perhaps innovation may be something that is more um, more needed now than you know the ability to um, to gain new business when the business yeah. is changing. So yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, you know, one of the things that you know, when I was in the Navy, you know, it was it was funny. We would we would put all these elaborate plans together, and then we'd launch off the carrier, knowing that within ten minutes of launch, our plans would all start to melt down, and then we'd go to you know Plan B and C and 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 regroup. And and I know you saw the same thing in the Army. You know, when you, you know, how did you train your teams to pivot quickly? You assess the situation, make smart decisions. Um, you know, ambiguous times call for people who can think well in ambiguous situations. How'd you teach your teams to do that? Well, we actually practiced it. Um, you know, I think it was Patton who said, "No, no plan survives the first shot fired in anger." I don't know if it was him. That that's it's kind of a well-worn military expression, right? Um, you know, as a as a battalion commander, battalion's about 750 soldiers. I was an infantry battalion commander. Uh, as a lieutenant colonel, I was an infantry battalion commander. We would, um, I would mix things up on my company commanders all the time in training. Um, you know, even if it was something as simple as going out on a 25-mile force march, you know, I'd, we'd provide an order, which would have the order of march, and uh, then at the last minute, I would change it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you find some interesting things. I mean, because the commander who was last in the order of March <laughs> one time, <laughs> he didn't even bring a map. So he just figured he was going to follow the company in front of him, right? Oh, <laughs> so, my. <laughs> so he was quite embarrassed. But we would, we would, do, we would, we would have different training scenarios where uh, whether it was a live fire exercise or – uh, like I said, even something as simple as a, as a, as a force march where we would, we would change up the conditions at the last minute and, uh, uh, and, and kind of make people respond to that. Um, you know, that's a simplistic way, um, of, of kind of doing things. Uh, but I think, you know, in a larger picture, in a larger sense, I mean, you mentioned that you'd, you know, when I was not an aviator, you were, but you know, you'd still have, you know, your primary plan and then you'd have, you know, plan B, plan C and plan D. Well, you know, maybe you had to throw away plan A quickly uh, because the conditions didn't match um, the basis of your plan. But the fact that you went through that process and you knew what plan A was and everybody knew what plan A was, made it easy to deviate to plan B. Right. Plan C or plan, you know, whatever, how, whatever, whatever changes you were going to make. Yep. So um, I think the success in something like that, again, goes back to um, the inclusivity of that plan, <clears throat> the inclusivity of that planning process and uh, the intellectual capital, the intellectual investment that the participants put into it. Because if everybody is, is engaged in making the plan when the commander calls a shot to deviate it becomes easy right 
So uh, again, I'm back to the, the, the foundational piece is, you know, an organization which is built on trust and where the boss engenders an atmosphere of open and honest communication without recrimination. Um, and oh, by the way, um, like Mark Twain says, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth and we should use them in that proportion, right? Yes, sir. Uh, you know, the, the boss needs to listen. And um, the more the boss found, the more the boss listens, um, typically the better the end product becomes. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, you think about in business, you know, I've been in business now since I left the Navy in 1995, and I've been in business now since then, 25 years. And, you know, I never once had a business leader, and maybe this changes things, but I never once had a business leader say, what if everything went, you know, take our risk models aside. What if everything went to hell tomorrow? What would we do? And, and organizationally, I never saw that happen. And maybe, maybe that changes things now to figure out, hey, look, what is the you know, plan B, C, D, you know, if everything were to melt down, you know, what do we, you know, where do we go? What do we do type of scenario? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, it's what is happening now was, is, is so far away from the uh, what anybody ever imagined that um, I just don't think COVID-19 and the impact that it's had on, you know, the world was something anybody uh, envisioned in their wild wildest, wildest imagination, you know, right. even as much as three months ago. So, you know, most business plans that I've, I've been a part of, you know, you, you put this thing together and you have a, a best case model, uh, a worst case model, and then a most likely model mm -hmm. uh, for your forecasts. And, but, but all of those, all of those models are, are based on, um, I can't recall there ever being a, a what I'll call the go to hell in a handbasket model where, you know, society just implodes and everything comes to a, to a standstill. Right. Um, because, because that's not, that's not, that's not likely, likely to happen at all. Right. Well, yeah, well, well, you did see some good, but you did see some good, you know, good, you know, good decision-making out there. I'll, I'll use uh, one leasing company, AirCap, as an example, you know, I think they, they sort of had a premonition back in March and they drew down, you know, they drew down 8 billion of the revolver. They're like, okay, we got, we got cash now. We get, we, we, we know we'll have cash. Um, I was reading about, you know, Barry Sternlit at Starwood, um, you know, which is a big REIT. And he's like, Hey, look, yeah, we, we always plan for good times. We plan for bad times. And we, you know, we keep a lot of dry powder and we've got 800 million in dry powder and, you know, three, three billion unencumbered. And, you know, we've got, we, we can use the capital markets. So, yeah, I think maybe, maybe I'm wrong. A lot of companies do think about, you know, kind of these, yeah, I know the airlines, you know, kept. Uh, yeah. I think perhaps the airlines may do that more than other companies right. uh, because they've, they've experienced things like this. I mean, nine 11 is still fresh in their minds, I'm sure. Right. And uh, the business. So uh, within the airline segment, um, you know, they've, they've lived through it 
in their lifetime. So yep. I think that's relatively fresh, but um, perhaps more so than other market segments. Um, they were, you know, as you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. They were severely impacted after 9-11. And, you know, so so they've been through it, but I'm not, I don't know if any other. Yeah. I mean, like, and the A&D. Yeah, I know some companies out there, they had two weeks worth of cash. I mean, they couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't, you know, they, they won't survive because they just didn't have the cash to survive. And they, yeah. you know, they don't have the credits to go to you know, the banks or the capital markets and they'll, they'll go away. But then you have, you know, there's some other companies out there that have done a great, you know, they've done a great job of managing their positions and, and it's, it's, it's really going to be interesting to see, um, you know, how this all, how, how it all plays itself out. So, you know, what, you know, from your, you know, your position as a you know, business and military leader, what would you, what, what best advice would you give people through the next, you know, 90 days? to uh to you know to roll through it well um stay calm if you can talk to your customers <laughs> and talk to your employees and um you know just again i mean um over communication with the customers is is and tailoring um Again, I, my experience is in the service sector. So uh, over communication with your customers and being able to tailor your service offerings to what the customers want and continually tailor them is uh, is what's going to win the game, I think. Yeah, no, I, uh, well, hey, look, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And uh, it's like you said from the beginning, over communication never hurt anybody. So yeah. thanks for coming on today. Greg, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Um, let's come back and have you back on once all this is done, and we'll see how we did with our uh, – we'll see how we did. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig, at NorthStarESG.com, or check us out at www.NorthStarESG.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pippen.